Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin Mancini. I am one of your co-hosts here, and I'm very happy to welcome my other co-host. He is the podcast editor for thepopbreak.com, Alex Marcus. How are you doing, Alex? I am a puddle of tears, Justin. Oh, man. I'm sure you could fill the oceans of Pandora with those tears. <laughs> <laughs> At least the oceans of my local IMAX screening room. <laughs> Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, we are very happy to have you here. Unfortunately, we do not have our other co-host, No France, today. He is not able to join us, but we do have uh, one of our recurring special guests uh, with us today. He is a podcaster and writer, Manish Mather. Hello, Manish. Hello. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing pretty well. Great to have you back. Um, the last time we had you on was to discuss The Woman King, which was uh, definitely a real highlight for me. Um and uh, we're here today to talk about Avatar The Way of Water, the uh, long-awaited question mark sequel to the original Avatar from 2009. Um, it'd be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting for me to see how this fares in terms of the box office pull, um, given the current uh, the current landscape. But uh, we will be talking about that. And actually, we will be jumping right into that because we're going to forgo our full disclosure segment and just get into this movie because there's quite a lot to discuss. Um, but before we get into the movie proper, I guess I just wanted to start off really quick by getting uh, both of your thoughts on the original film and what impact it's had on you uh, since you saw it back in, I'm assuming, back in 2009. Yeah, um, well, I, I think I talked about the re-release on the Woman King episode, so um, definitely go back and listen to that um, for, I guess, a longer conversation. But I mean, I I saw I I saw the first Avatar five times in theaters in from December two thousand nine to probably February or March two thousand ten. Uh, it was one of those things where it's kind of like, oh, you know, I have nothing to do. There's like, it's cold, whatever. I'll just like go see Avatar, you know. And I always think about how like we don't really have that anymore. Like, well, I'm curious to see how long Avatar 2 stays in theaters because like sometimes it feels like if you don't see something like the first three weeks, then like it's kind of gone. Um, so uh, but I, I imagine with something as big as Avatar, it'll be um, it'll be more long lasting. But yeah, I mean, I love the movie and like it's one of those things where I just like have such a it's it's such a unique experience just I mean the special effects and the you know the 3D and all that but also just like it just feels so different than the kind of like blockbusters we have now and I think seeing the re-release in September and then seeing the sequel um this past Friday like it's really I mean, I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but it really feels like there's something so different about this movie, and like I, you know, I feel so like I have such an attachment to the original. I mean, I, could, I, I people are always like, oh, like you can't watch it out of the theater, but like I have seen it like on DVD and Blu-ray and stuff, and like I plan to watch it on Disney Plus at some point this holiday season with my family. So um, I'm like, you know, I I find it to be a, a really just a beautiful exciting just unique film so it's, yeah it's, it's, oh go ahead no i was gonna say for for me my experience with avatar is probably a little less enthusiastic than uh Venetia's, uh in the sense that i definitely saw it in theaters when it came out uh, i believe i didn't see it until january of, 
2010. Uh, but I did see it. I only saw it the one time. I liked the experience. I thought the the technical achievement was incredible. Um, I thought that the story was maybe a little bit lacking. Um, and I still put it in my top 10 of the year that year in a very competitive and kind of diverse field of films the year 2009. So it was in my top 10. wasn't my number one. I wasn't rooting for it to win Best Picture uh, that year, but it was definitely in the back half of my top 10. And and then I kind of just like put it in a box and I, and I and I put that box on a shelf and I was like, well, I hear we're going to get more of these eventually. So I'll, I'll wait until we find out when those are coming out and then I'll reconsider this movie at that point. Um, and then 13 years passed. And during that 13 years, I didn't really think that much about Avatar. Um, I forgot most of the movie. Um, and I was increasingly, I guess, annoyed that James Cameron just decided that he was going to take over a decade to make another one of these. And that these were the only movies that he was going to make uh, until he dies, presumably, because he has five more uh, in the works or, or I guess five total, um, if you include the first two. So, uh, in any case, it, it became this kind of like weird albatross around the kind of filmmaking uh, universe where it's like, is this ever happening? Is this ever going to be worth it? Um, and uh, and then I actually, ahead of this movie, the one that we're reviewing today, I decided to rewatch Avatar for the first time since that early 2010 uh, viewing. Uh, and I found myself liking it a lot more than I remembered that I liked it. Uh, it the emotional beats worked a lot better for me than I thought that they were going to. It wasn't just the technical achievement. Obviously, watching it on my 10-inch iPad uh, <laughs> reduces some of the majesty of that experience. Um, it definitely is a flawed movie, but I think that the emotional beats really still worked for me. And when, you know, spoiler alert, when the animals come uh, to to join into the fray against the colonizers, I was like, I was so emotionally moved. I, I loved that part when, when Nateria is like... Oh, I heard you, Jake. She heard you. And and then and all the birds and the monsters from the beginning of the movie come and fight on on our side and everything. It's it's a great moment. It's that's what cinema is all about. So I was like, maybe I was a little bit too harsh on this movie, but I still am not totally sold that we need another one of these. And then I went and I saw it. So we'll get into that now. But Justin, what was your experience of the first movie at the time? And I did see your letterboxed of your rewatch, so I have a little bit of an idea yeah. of how it's aged <laughs> for you. <laughs> um, so I would say this is a film that I enjoyed the first time I saw it. I saw it in theaters, in IMAX, in 3D. Um, felt like a very unique experience. Almost felt like a, a theme park ride, but in a good way. Um, and I think the thing I really appreciated about the 3D was not so much things you know <laughs> jutting out of the screen as we tend to think but the more subtle things like you know dirt and grass being kicked up from the horses hooves things like that like it just it felt much more immersive than i was used to for for a film and i think it was something where i i wasn't as maybe invested in the story um as i wanted to be but it was such a visually immersive experience that i still really enjoyed it i remember actually seeing it a couple more times um you know just like at home um usually with other you know with other people who hadn't seen it um so i i would say i liked it overall and then time went by and i really feel like this film became a punching bag um and i was curious but then it kind of like enough time passed where it like went from being pretty critically lauded when it came out to a punching bag to then critical reevaluation, <laughs> um which is really fascinating to see how that's gone and so when I went to rewatch it, I was kind of keeping all of that in mind. 
and trying to go in with an open mind. And I really feel like the thing that surprised me is I thought I was going to be either very positive or very negative. And I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle <laughs> on the first movie. There's so much about it that works for me. And there's quite a lot that doesn't. I love all the visual stuff. I think it's actually doing quite a lot of, of emotional investiture because he's creating this sense of the world and why it's worth preserving. And I think that really does um, end up making it uh, very satisfying. But I also was not as invested in the actual human characters and the Navi characters as I wanted to be. And I think because of that, it was an, a, a kind of like weird roller coaster for me of highs and lows. Um, so I wasn't quite sure how I was going to feel about this next movie that we're about to talk about. Um, but I was kind of keeping that in mind. And, uh, you know, I'm really fascinated to see the myriad of responses, both for the first movie and for this movie, because I still kind of feel like I'm in, <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Um as we as we get into as we get into this film but um how did you guys react to to this film i mean it seems like you went in with a pretty you know you're very much anticipating it um how did it live up to your expectations and uh did it possibly exceed them well it completely exceeded my expectations i was blown away by this movie by how much i cared about what was happening on screen i was moved uh to an incredible degree uh during some of the more emotional parts of the film uh and i was thrilled i was awed i was i it's like everything that a movie can do this movie did for me now saying that there are some flaws right it's a three-hour movie and there are certainly some things that don't work uh and there are certainly some things that hold back my enthusiasm but I think overall, taking into account what it was as a filmmaking exercise, what it was as, a, as an emotional experience, uh, it just blew me away. Yeah, I have to echo that. I mean, I think I had pretty high expectations for this movie just because, you know, when something is a decade plus in the making based, you know, a sequel to like one of the most, uh, I guess, like the most successful movie of all time. Uh, I, I guess I don't know what where it ranks now with Avengers Endgame and, and stuff, but and Star Wars. But um, you know, I, expectations were high, and I think during the first hour, I was kind of like, oh wait, what's is this actually not living up to what I thought it was going to be? But then I was like, well, actually, all the stuff that I, all the cool stuff in the trailers seemed like it's coming up from the second half of the movie or the second two hours. So I was like, maybe I'll just be a little patient, and then you know, wait to get to the water park because that's that's what was exciting to me the most. And yeah, I would say definitely exceeded my expectations or I guess met them because they're pretty high. And um, yeah, I found it to be very uh, emotionally resonant, of course, very exciting. And uh, I was just really, um, I was really taken with some of the, you know, narrative risks that the movie took and how, you know, it just doesn't really... Uh, it's not a movie that holds your hand, which I appreciate. That's what I like about the first Avatar too. Um, it's you know these are not movies where you know there's a lot of expo exposition, but the exposition is so heady <laughs> and it's so like wild. It's just like they're just gonna say something and then drop it, and then we have to just catch up to it. So um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed the movie. I look forward to seeing it again um, in the next in the next few weeks. Uh, maybe I don't know if I'll see it five times like I did last time, but um, possibly maybe at least once or twice more. 
Yeah. How I about you, Justin? Ah, I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I wish I had no, an experience like that. <laughs> I was, yeah, this is what I was afraid of. When I, after I watched this movie, I was like, this was an incredible experience. I'm so excited to get to talk to it on the podcast. And I was like, oh no, but Justin's probably going to hate this movie. <laughs> was, honestly, it's definitely not a hate thing for me. I wouldn't like, it's kind of similar to the first movie for me. There's a lot here that works for me. Again, it was a case of like, there'd be moments that just like wowed me. And I th- found like so satisfying. And then plenty of other moments where I felt like I wanted to groan. Um, so and it was really interesting theatrical experience because it seemed like everybody in the theater was really into it, uh, including my mom, who I saw it with. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of like just in this weird headspace where I'm like really into it and then really not and then really into it. And it's a I don't know. It's very strange. And I wonder if that actually made it a bit exhausting, especially as a three hour movie. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like. A part of my issue with the film is that I'm not as invested in the characters as I ever want to be. It's they feel more like types to me than they do like actual people. Um, It's very like, you know, I found it like very predictable in a lot of ways. A lot of the character beats seemed like pretty telegraphed. Um, And I think I just as much as I'm impressed with like what he's able to do visually, I think sometimes as a storyteller, I'm so aware of Cameron that it almost takes me out of the experience. Um, There's a whole extended, you know, uh, this isn't a major spoiler, but there's a whole extended basically polemic against whaling where they basically walk through how it works, at least on this world. And it just seems so clear to me what Cameron wanted to accomplish in that moment that it ceased to be organic and just felt like Cameron kind of talking at us. And I just... Wow. And I, but I, at the same time, I think he is able to do things visually that aren't like that at all. I love the design of like I love this organic design of the antagonists. I thought that was really cool because it showed how they've had to adapt to this world. And he, again, and he's able to do that without really telling us it's all there visually. And I think I don't know. So that so there's so much to like here and then so much that just kind of makes me. It just takes me out of the experience. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, so did the again, space whales not experience. work for you? Did the space whales work for me? Um, you know, it's hard for them not to work because they're whales. <laughs> like, right. And <laughs> there's such an emphasis on the eyes. So there's a bit of a more like, you know, I, and there's a more obvious literal connection here. Um, I don't know. But it's like, again, is it is it something that I feel like it's, for me, it's because, yeah, I like whales. How am I not going to be invested in them? But I don't know if that's like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if that's as much of what the film is doing as the things that I already like. But I don't know. Did you guys feel differently? Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, I, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess when it comes to like, you know, the predictability part of it, I mean, See, like, this is where it's hard for me to talk about Avatar and, I guess, now the sequel, because to me it's like, well, yeah, this movie is trading in a very classic story, and the characters are archetypes, and to me that's part of the charm, because, you know, I mean, especially, like, you know, like, the first one comes out in 2009, where there's only Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk and the Dark Knight have come out, and Batman Begins, and then now here we are, and there's, like you know, reboots and, and the whole MCU. And it's just like, everything is just like, there's such a like, um, everything's so knowing about 
you know what it what it is to be a blockbuster i mean like you know i mean I, I like those movies a lot of course and like you know deadpool i like that movie too and all that but it's like it's just kind of nice to have like a traditional conventional story where it's like there's no need to like be like oh i just like i'm riding a whale how cool is that you know like they show this <laughs> they show this um shazam trailer before there's a part in that trailer where like i guess he like throws a bus or whatever and he's like i just threw a bus how cool is that and i'm like <laughs> there's nothing like that in the avatar movie so it's like i can forgive a lot of what you're talking about like the predictability and sort of like how cameron is like putting his own like environmental message into the movie just because like at least it's earnest and like i don't have to feel like um I don't feel like I'm smarter than the movie and I don't feel like I'm stupid to watch the movie. Cause like sometimes I watch a movie and I'm like, are you like, are you just saying I shouldn't be here? Like, because you're so like ashamed of being what you are. Like, so it's like, I can forgive all that because it's like, it's just, there's nothing else. I mean, there's literally like, I guess the woman King, you know, calling back to the summer is like the only movie that I think really captures this feeling too of like, it can just be like a straightforward action epic, you know, with characters that, I mean, because the Woman King also had very archetypical characters, whether it's like, you know, the reserve leader or the, you know, the worried sidekick or like the sarcastic rogue or like the new ingenue, like, you know, like, I mean, I think the Woman King does a better job of like subverting those and, and being a little bit more like, you know, doing more interesting things with that than Avatar is, of course. But I think that it's just, um, you know, there's just it's it's kind of like when I watch a movie like um, you know, like when I watch a movie like Bros or whatever, and it's like, oh, this is just a typical romantic comedy, and it's like, well, how many of those do we actually get? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like this is something that like it's just it's just a different kind of movie than we have a lot of these days, and I just think that, I mean, because even like, I mean, even everyone's favorite Top Gun Maverick, like even that had that like meta like knowing thing where it's like. It, I just didn't feel a sincerity in that movie as much as other people did. Um, or, you know, so I, I just feel like, you know, to me, everything that you're saying is true. But for me, it's kind of like what makes this series, this franchise more endearing. And like the fact that like there really hasn't been like spinoffs or merchandise or, you know, reboots. Or I mean, I know there's a theme park, but like, you know, the fact that like there hasn't been like a lot of like, capitalizing on this franchise feels like you know i think that's why like this movie is going to be successful with people who like don't follow movies as closely as we do because it's like they just remember the first one and how they want to see the sequel and there isn't like a lot of stuff to catch up on you know they just have to rewatch the first one if they want you know so i don't know i'm, I'm trying not to sound like i'm like excusing a lot of the criticism you have because i feel like they're accurate but i guess for me it's kind of like part of the it's like part of the packaging of the movie Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a feature, not a bug yeah. with a movie like this. Yeah. And I, I fully agree. I think that when something is well executed, it doesn't matter if it's familiar, right? Like if And this is in, if executed on such an incredibly effective level. Like uh, when those – so this movie opens on a, uh, a long kind of voiceover montage catching us up on what's going on. Uh, and I think that the first act of this movie, which is probably about 45 minutes long, uh, is definitely the weakest part of the movie because it, sure. it's just throwing a ton of exposition at you in a very inartful way. Um, they're really not even trying to uh, 
give it to you in like a movie they're just like here's a giant data dump of, of everything that you're going to need because we're going to move on from this setting like really fast and go into an entirely different thing so I, I almost wish that like in this era of like expanded universe and streaming content that we could have gotten like some sort of faux documentary on the state status quo yeah. of pandora on disney plus that we could have just watched for like 45 minutes and then we're like okay now we know this now we're just going to jump right into the movie with them leaving the tribe right but that was probably unrealistic we couldn't get that so yeah. that is definitely a weakness but what's crazy about that part of the movie is that like we're immediately introduced to jake sully's and natiri's entire family right and we in quick order learn about their basically like it's almost like the Starks in Game of Thrones like the structure of their family is very similar like there's one adopted uh, child who is the chosen one uh, you got the another adopted child who is kind of like the Theon of the group um, in a lot of ways uh, <laughs> and then you have a couple of uh, naturally born children who have, are dealing with the legacy of their father in different ways that are complicated um, so we got that that going on and th this this film the writing of this film was developed at around the same time that game of thrones was hot so i'm really curious how much of that is um inadvertent and how much of that is intentional but uh in any case as we're learning about this family i was like i'm never gonna he's never gonna make me care about these freaking kids there's too yeah. many of them there right. i can't track who is who right. all of the different relationships it's just too much you're never gonna get me there and you know what three hours later i was so deeply invested in these in this family and these kids and when they're in peril and they're kind of rising to uh take the reins of the franchise basically from their parents who were who at least nateria is a really good character she's probably the best thing about the first avatar movie um jake sully uh you know when i rewatched the movie i was surprised that he is slightly more interesting than i remembered or gave him credit for but like only slightly more uh, <laughs> and so here you know they the kids take the reins from them basically by the end of this film and i was like cheering them on i was like yes this is amazing so cameron did it right he he through the course of this three-hour film made me care about something that I knew I wasn't going to care. When we get to the Telcon uh, bit, which are the space whales, um, as soon as he starts showing us about them and telling us all this information about how amazing they are, it was like, you're only doing this because you're going to make us watch them get murdered brutally by <laughs> terrible col colonizers. Right. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to let you, you're not going to get me to care. I know what you're doing and I'm not going to do it. And then when we get the sequence, you know, spoiler alert, where they are poaching the the mother and her calf, I was just completely devastated. I was so impacted by it. I was literally like weeping in the cinema. I had never been as close to standing up and screaming at the screen in a movie as I was in that moment because it was so horrific. I was so upset. And I was like, God damn it, you did it. Like, so this is where I'm talking about when it comes to like execution, right? Like he is able to, he, he tells you, I'm gonna, I'm planting my flag. I'm gonna make you care about this. And you're like, all right, I know exactly what you're doing and it's not gonna work. And then, you know, three hours later, it works 100% exactly how he wants it to. So I, I think that that's an incredible triumph of cinema in, in that way. Like, I think that it's even harder to be able to to execute on something like that when everyone in the audience knows what you're doing. And they it's like if a magician explains the magic trick to you before it starts and then he still wows you with the trick you know and mm -hmm. that's what james cameron can do because he's one of our best uh, visual filmmakers of all time you know and uh and yeah i just i think that it is 
an incredible achievement to get me to, you know, Justin, you say, well, they're whales and I care about whales. But from my perspective, Tulkan are not real. They don't exist, right? I had never heard of them when the movie started. And by the end of the movie, they are, I have a deep, profound personal connection to these animals, these creatures, and I would die to protect them. And the movie did that, right? Like that's the movie achieved that all on its own within that three hour runtime. And I think if you can do that in a film, you have succeeded as a film. I mean, yeah, but I I think he's definitely like it's very clear that he's playing into a lot of the things, you know, a lot of things we associate with whales down to the product that they're getting from them, too. Um, you know, I think it's a real even even down to the fact that, like, we're seeing this like little thing that they're getting. And then, of course, the script has to underline that, too, because it's not it's a strange thing sometimes because it's like I don't think it's a case where Cameron doesn't trust his visual filmmaking. I think it's a case where he's like just incapable of modulation, <laughs> like where it's like it's not enough to see it. We also have to have the character say it and that character is to be like the most despicable scum of the earth. When they say well, it. actually, what's interesting is that, like, so the guy who is the poacher, the main poacher, is there being shitty. But Jermaine Clement is actually the guy who's spending the most time talking and explaining the situation to us in that scene. And he is an incredibly morally uh, compromised person who knows he's morally compromised. Sure. And in a way that I found very interesting is a contrast to the Sigourney Weaver character in the first movie, right? She is the kind of, like, science person. She has She's a little bit misguided in, in her attempts to westernize the Navi, but she genuinely cares and wants to learn from them and, and honors them as, as, as living beings in a way that her corporate overlords don't uh here Jermaine clement is like he knows he's he's not fighting against the system right he's like i'm learning about sure. these things because i'm interested in them and i and i feel like what we're doing is probably terrible but i've made peace with that in a really kind of terrible way and he just feels so deeply like detached from his humanity in a way that clearly pains him uh and i found that to be really interesting that he's yeah, the person he that we're learning lot, from apparently. <laughs> well yes <laughs> and then like i also found it interesting that you know i mean we're just going to talk about the movie in in totality so this is another spoiler but uh, like he's on that ship when they all die right and he brutal he gets brutally killed just like the rest of them he doesn't get saved because he knows better he but he gets to be there being like we deserve this and it's kind of good that this is happening and i found that to be a pretty interesting note it's kind of a, a pretty dark uh nihilistic streak in a movie that's this sincere and earnest <laughs> and i found that interesting but um, but yeah, in the scene in question that you're talking about, I, I have to say I had to literally look away from the screen because I felt after we had found out how amazing these creatures were to see them just walking around the inside of a carcass of one. It just was like it felt so sacrilegious to me. It felt so despicable that they could just be in there talking about the brain serum or whatever. And, and, and like, I literally couldn't handle it. So like, that's how deeply emotionally invested I was at that point in the film. And by that point, like they just had me, you know, I have to say, I love the, like, I love the look of that because it's like this deep, like cavernous, like it looks somehow even bigger inside than it did from the outside. And to see this little thing again, it's sat like it's effective, it's satisfying, and I think just because I'm so aware of what Cameron, how exactly Cameron wants us to feel, I just brace <laughs> at that. I don't know how did how did you feel, Manish, about all of the you know all of the whale stuff, and and were you expecting this movie to be as much about them as as it is? No, I felt like 
I mean, it really takes about like an hour and a half, or about right, because you don't really yeah. get you don't really hear about the whales until um, the sun gets taken to like the outer reef area. Um, and even then, like I was thinking, like okay, these are just like the main central, you know, animal figure in this film, just like we had um, in the in the first one, and um, and so. And, but then as like as we learn more about them and like as we you know hear about their relationship to the to the tribe, it's like okay, you know these are actually very going to be important to the story and sort of whaling becomes a big part of it but i i guess i just didn't find that distracting knowing that you know james cameron is of course a very environmental figure i guess i'm just trying to understand like so because he's like a very environmental and he's and he put that into the movie that's kind of a turnoff for you i'm, I'm just trying to understand like it's more the it's like, way. Well, this is like this is like what he does. Like he loves the water. Like all of his movies almost take place in the water. Like yeah. after Titanic and the abyss. So I just I guess I felt I felt very much talked at, and maybe that's also a reaction to how like annoyed I am by anything Cameron says like in the press. Maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I just I guess I I like I guess I respond less to um you know a very definitive kind of like it's like polemical type of approach to you know um to environmentalism at least in my movies um and i guess you know i feel like something like princess mononoke is a much more effective version of that for me because it's not just about um it's not just about environmentalism like telling you how to feel about it it's exploring all the complexities around it and how humanity interacts with it and i just don't think this and you know i don't think this movie is even aspiring to that level of nuance necessarily but it's just not something that i really um find um i just don't necessarily react to it um in the way that i think i just don't find it very persuasive um to just be you know kind of to to feel like I'm meant to feel a certain way. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Like you felt like it was manipulative? Yeah, that's that's probably the right Isn't that way. what all film is, though? Like all film, like good film manipulates you into feeling things that you wouldn't otherwise feel. Yeah, so but you for, don't descri- like, wouldn't describe all. Are you going to describe every movie as manipulative? Like what? Isn't there a reason why we use that as a derogatory term? <laughs> Well, I don't think I use it as a derogatory term, but I I hear what you're saying. I guess if like I just felt very emotionally invested in what was happening. So I didn't feel it as like a polemic. Like there is literally that one speech where they explain like this is why we're doing this. Um, But that's after he takes the time of like 20 minutes where he really lets you know who these creatures are and how amazing they are. And and you feel that he doesn't just tell you that, like you see it, you experience it, you experience it in a variety of different ways where like first you see how he like the black sheep of the telecon, like he that like rescues the boy and you see that there's like a humanity there and then you see the whole tribe of telecon come in and and the relationship that they have with the tribes people of the navi and you have that whole experience and then you see the 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 peril that they're in once they're being hunted 
and and then at the end of that you get the kind of punctuation mark of like oh here's why this is all happening it's for this anti-aging serum which obviously overlaps to the whaling industry in a way because that was you know the beauty products that were from the whale so for me i think that if if you start out with the monologue about like that we're evil corporate people and we're killing these animals for this reason uh that feels polemic but if you take the time to like really invest us in in the creatures and in their community and and what makes them special and then show us how horrible it is on an emotional level and then give us a speech at the end being like here's why this is happening i think that that's a much more effective way to kind of at least counteract that sort of like people making a speech about how environmentalism is bad but i mean that's my that's my experience of it i'm not trying to invalidate your experience of it and this is a movie that has a lot of other things to talk about so i think that we could probably move on to other aspects of it because this is just like that that was honestly my favorite part of the film and it was the one that i was that i think is the most effective um but there's lots of other things happening in the movie and and i know you said that there are some things that you liked about the movie so i'd like to hear like an area of the film that worked well for you sure um so i have to i mean i've talked before about the visuals i love the creature design in these movies um i actually haven't looked i don't know if either of you know because i haven't looked yet but um, I know that, and I've mentioned this before, I think, on a previous episode, but I know Wayne Barlow is an artist that I really love, and he was a creature consultant on the first movie. I don't know if he was also used here, um, but I just love the look of these things. The whales, for sure, um, but also just, like, all the other creatures. Like, I love the, um, especially the things that the adults in the tribe ride, which look like, almost like ichthyosauruses. <laughs> and <laughs> I think, you know, as someone who read a lot about prehistoric animals growing up to see them like actually on screen, um, I thought that was really cool. Um, But also like as their own thing, like not just not just representations uh, that have been done before, but actually adding new elements to them, the fact that they can fly. But again, and here's another thing I really like. I love that they just don't explain the fact that, yeah, they're aquatic creatures who have to go in the water and the Navi have to adapt to that by <laughs> essentially learning how to ride them underwater in addition to, you know, over the water. Um, so I really like that. I like that um, there's still this sense of having a literal connection with the animals, um, but it's a different kind of connection. And I also like that I like how this whole world of living in this kind of tribe would work and the things you have to do physically to your body in order to adapt to that. Um, And I know that there's been a lot of talk about like how about free diving. And I like that we do get a scene of them like meditating and learning how to control their breath, um, which does come back later. And so I think there's a lot of effective, just like world building aspects to that, um, which again, does invest you in the world um, and uh, did make some of the emotional moments land for me as a result. Yeah, I think that, so for me, I think I I said this earlier, but I'll say it again because I don't know if I said it as clearly. The movie really feels like three movies, right? The first, the opening act, which is about 45 minutes long, is that exposition dump section that I think is the weakest. The middle portion of the film is this like hour where we're just on the reef 
experiencing the world, experiencing the animals. And I think that, that part is an incredibly effective uh, bit of world building and a visual majesty, right? We really get a sense of this community, of this place, of these animals, of these creatures, of this world under the water. The way that all of this was done is just kind of mind blowing. The fact that they really were, the actors were free diving, holding their breaths for minutes at a time to shoot these things. All of the water scenes are scenes of people underwater, which is insane because it's like all digitally augmented and mm -hmm. and with the CG overlays on it and then the CG creatures around them. And it's like I don't I literally don't understand how any of that is possible. Like I just it just it really is mind blowing in a way that like I didn't think that movies could be mind blowing anymore because it's like we've been with these like CG creatures and this like uh like computer generated worlds for so long now that it there was a part of me that was like well I guess like it's going to be really hard to innovate to a degree that's going to make me be like wow I can't believe this is happening again because it's just like we're so used to like we just turn on our tv screens and there's somebody in a 3g simulated world talking to a, a, a like a anthropomorphized flower and it's just like that's just normal right this we're just that's the world we live in now so the fact that they were able to do this in a way that was just like i literally looks like i'm watching tactile people in a tactile world and yet i know that none of that is real except for somehow the water is real and like I, it, it's really breathtaking how beautiful it is and how incredible it is from a filmmaking perspective. And then well, we get to the and then we get to the last act, which we're going to talk about later, I'm sure, which is yeah. the, just incredible action uh, symphony. But I but let's keep talking about this because Manish, I'm really curious what you think about that middle portion of the film. Well, it's interesting because um, one of the great pleasures of the first Avatar is that first half of the film where it's all this world building and you're learning about the Navi culture, you're learning about Ewa, you know, you're with Jake as he's, um, you know, learning all these new skills and trying to get acclimated and he's, you know, it's it's a really clever construction and I think one of the, one of the genius points about the first Avatar is that we're kind of dropped into this conflict between the humans and Navi that's been going on for decades, I presume, or at least years. Um, and so it feels like it, it kind of bypasses that, like, oh, humans are first discovering them. It's like there's already a history um, with in, in Pandora. And so what I like about the sequel is that it does kind of replicate that same structure where, um, you know, we're kind of dropped into this culture. And now it's Jake and his family. They're the ones learning about the um, uh, Marikaina Marik culture. <laughs> um, yeah. They are, um, I, sorry, I had the Wikipedia open because I want to make sure I have the, I, I want to get the names right. But um, so like, it's kind of like repeating that same structure of like, here's this whole new world that we're learning and there's some awareness of them, but like, they're, you know, the the Sullies, which is, I think it's very funny. They call themselves the Sullies, but um, <laughs> they, it's just very much like, you know, they have a little reality show going on. Um <laughs> But, so they stick together. Right, exactly. That's the title of it on TLC. Um, <laughs> but I, I think so. I like that we, we get to have that like same rush of like world building. And, you know, it, it's I mean, again, it's like crazy that this all comes from James Cameron's mind. I mean, of course, I know he's based these cultures and these traditions on many different groups of real people. But for the most part, these are coming from him and you know, the creature designs and the way that they talk and the way that they um, really experience the world is just so unique. And, it, and it's just, it's fun. It's thrilling. It's, I think, 
I mean, I don't know. During this time, I'm like, wow, this might be my favorite part of the movie. But then, I, I, I mean, I love the the third hour. It's actually the best part of the film. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's so thrilling and it's so exciting. And you know, I love that one creature. You might have mentioned it already, but I don't remember the name. But it's like the creature that like is like a goose slash alligator. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah. it's, uh-huh. it's the one in the it's uh, he's they're in the teaser too, and I remember thinking, oh, like what a cool like alligator thing they're riding, and then it like opens the beak and you it's like a bird. I don't know, it's very interesting. Um, but and so I just love all that, and you know, I love Kate Winslet, love Cliff Curtis. You know, I think I do want to talk about the kids because it is very like '80s high school movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I was like, has anyone really said the word freak in the last 30 years, James Cameron? But um, it's like, he probably, I don't think he had, I don't know how old his kids are, but I imagine he hasn't been around teenagers in like 25 years. So it's fine. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's cute, whatever. Um, I So, but I, I enjoyed that part a lot. And I think it does a really good job of setting up and also kind of like, you know, it makes the first 45 minutes feel a little bit more easy to take just because like I remember checking my watch like when they first when like Kate Winslet first comes on um being like has it been like an hour and a half already because that first hour felt that first like 45 minutes felt like forever just because it's like it's kind of a, a repeat of the first movie in a less interesting way um but i was like i was only been like uh, it's only been like an hour and then the next two hours just fly by so um uh yeah so i really enjoy the, the middle section i mean all the underwater stuff is really cool and also i love that like they're not good at it yet like just like how jake took a while to like learn this stuff and like he makes so many mistakes and he's like you know he's kind of i mean the biggest laugh for me is when um uh cliff curtis is like you guys are like babies because that's such a like famous line from the first one of like when Natiri's like you're like a baby bumping into things don't know what to do well famous line for me I guess but um (laughs) it's like that's like the one line I remember from the first movie like very clearly like that part um in all the years since I've seen it but um so that was a nice little callback and how like the Sullys are just like so clueless and bad at this like it's in their genes to be bad at this for a good chunk of time before they get the hang of it um so i it was was kind of cool and i and i wonder if this is going to be his plan for the next three movies where it's like each one is a whole new kind of ecosystem and like a whole new tribe and like a whole new culture that we get to experience um i don't know if he has three more of these uh up his sleeve but if he does great because i i could watch this world building for for any, for any number of movies. Yeah, that like I remember when the first one came out and then there was this whole movement of people who were like, I, like the people wrote about it that like people were genuinely depressed, like clinically depressed that they couldn't go to Pandora and visit the flora and fauna of the world. And I remember thinking like, I don't like what? Like, yeah, it was cool, but it's like, I mean, we've seen like alien worlds before. This isn't like an incredibly novel experience. This time... I can honestly deeply relate to that. I was like, I really want to go to this reef. I really want to see these animals. They seem amazing. It seems like an incredible place to visit, an incredible experience to live amongst. And I kind of do feel sad that it's not real because it just feels so, so real. It just, it feels so deeply thought out and deeply constructed and just incredible world building. Wait, did I talk about this in the the Woman King episode about how like I was one of those Pandora depressed people? 
I don't think so. <laughs> I was definitely one of those. Like, I was on all these like Facebook groups about like becoming like one with Awa and like learning <laughs> how to speak Navi. And like, I mean, you, you remember back in like 2010, Facebook, it was like all about the groups. All that you would join the fan pages, you would join yep. like get like stickers and poking and stuff. Like, I'll, I joined so many of these avatar fan pages of like, I'm a fan of Taruk Makto, or like, <laughs> I'm a fan of Awa. I'm a fan of those little like, um, those like flying jellyfish thing. Like, um, oh god, yeah. So definitely one of those people. Because I mean, there's a reason why I think people went back to see it so many times. I mean, just like with Titanic, and I think even just like with Avengers Endgame or or, or Black Panther, it's like, or Star Wars. Like you just like these worlds are so like lovingly and um, detailed crafted crafted with such detail that like you just want to go back and experience I mean like I think Avatar is both of them are such immersive experiences that like I didn't see the second one I didn't see the way of water in 3D I just saw it in 2D uh, Dolby um, but I want to see it in 3D again uh, so I, I just couldn't get tickets to it and plus like a 3D I don't know glasses on glasses it's not very comfortable um, for three, so the idea <laughs> of doing that I'll for three hours, that. I was like, I, I don't know, my eyes can't take it, but I'm definitely going to do it now that I like the movie. Um, but yeah, it's so immersive and it's so like, it's a whole, I mean, you know, it's like, like the Star Wars, it's like each planet is like one kind of weather. You know, you have the desert, you have the swamp, you have the city, but like on Pandora, it's just such a like fully realized ecosystem. <laughs> That just feels different, you know? Um, and, like, look, I love the Star Wars planets. I think I always thought it was so cool that, like, there's a city planet and a jungle planet. But it's kind of cool that, like, we have the forest, now we have the, the water, we have the mountains. I think, I hope one I hope one sequel is about, like, a snowy part of Pandora. Like, it's just, like, these are just the kind of, like, it's everything so thought out that I, it's it's hard not, for me at least, it's hard not to get swept away in it. Yeah, I, I agree. I was talking to somebody, like, they were saying to me about how they'd seen this movie, too, and they said, like, I wish that there is a way for us to just watch this world through a non-narrative lens, because for him, the, the the story didn't work so well, and he didn't really care that much about the characters, but he found the world building to be incredible. And I was telling him about how Disney Plus has Star Wars biomes, which is literally that. It's, like, literally just, like, a 30-minute program that is just moving from uh star wars planet to star wars planet uh just seeing landscapes and of the of the environment uh set to tranquil music <laughs> and it's like <laughs> we need that for avatar i think that would crush i hope that james cameron uh, allows uh disney plus to do that now that it's part of the family because i think that that would be just in it imagine falling asleep every night to like the sounds of the reef and pandora like i mean honestly incredible. i would love that I better mean, well, than melatonin and, well and like i many years ago Winnie, she came on and said that one of your favorite things to do in college was to fall asleep to the sounds of vertigo and i yeah. have to imagine that this would be a more soothing experience <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, I also feel compelled to mention, just because you were talking about some of the Facebook groups, Manish, that uh, our absent co-host, Noah, I distinctly remember making his profile picture himself as a Navi. So oh, no. he obviously <laughs> had positive feelings about it then. Um, yeah, maybe it doesn't look so great in retrospect. Um, but uh, but would yeah, be curious he to hear to be, his... When he, be, when he gets elected a senator, that, that picture's going to come back. It's going to come back to haunt him. Oh, down. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, it's it's a shame that Noah couldn't be with us today because I, I would just love to hear what he had to say about that. I yeah. feel like this movie is made for him in a lot of ways. I think that he would love it. Um, I was going to ask, uh, so Alex, did you see this in 3D? I saw it in 3D IMAX. Okay. Like, IMAX okay. like at my local mall, so not like an actual like, you know, sure. seven story IMAX screen, but the closest that I could get to. Um, and I did have to watch it through my glasses. And I have in mm. the years since Avatar just become loathed to see anything in 3D because it's just like yeah. it's an un it's an uncomfortable experience that is rarely benefits anything at all. Like you maybe get one or two moments of depth that seem cool in an, in like a two hour long presentation. Most of the time, it's just never worth it. Uh, but when it comes to avatar, you have to see it in 3d, right? Like you have to experience it the way that he wants you to, uh, just to get the full picture. And so I was like, well, I'll do it. And I was, so glad that I did. Number one, uh, the the IMAX 3D glasses are actually slightly more comfortable than the other kind of 3D glasses, which I forgot about. Um, there's more integrity to them, I think, so they go over my glasses a little bit better. Um, but yeah, the, the, it was just I think that the the underwater stuff, especially the depth perception in that those spaces were just so incredibly um, enhanced with the 3D technology. So I definitely would recommend people seeing it in 3D IMAX if you can, because you just got to see this world on the largest possible format in the best possible quality also the sound design in a, in an imax screening is is definitely helped and and it also it makes it the most likely that you're going to get a good uh projection um presentation which you can't always guarantee on every screen now i i am personally more pref uh, a partial to Dolby presentation for most films and so uh, I would definitely be curious to watch it in Dolby as well to see the comparison because I think that the sound and the and the visual uh, crispness of Dolby is definitely superior to IMAX unless you can see it on a, on a true IMAX screen which are few and far between uh, in the United States um, but I think for Avatar specifically I would recommend the, the IMAX 3D experience. I mean I had to remind myself they were underwater because it was so clear. Um, <laughs> and like, look, you guys know, huge fan of Life of Pi. Um, yes. And one of your parts of Life of Pi is when like there's these, the overhead shots, you know, you see like the fish or the whale under the water and it's like, you're not, you know, it looks like you're looking at like a painting from above, you know, like, mm -hmm. and Avatar has so many shots like that. And I mean, it just looked incredible. Like it looked, I mean, like there's one shot of, um, Loak and the whale you know it's like also in the trailer where they're like kind of like holding hands I guess yeah and yeah. it just looks so crisp and it looked so clear and I mean again immersive is the only word I can really use because like it was just so um you know or like when uh you know when they're in the um oh god the um you know when when Kiri first like connects to the to Awa and she has that seizure like when they're in that area um it just looks so like vibrant and like the use of like bioluminescence is so so like striking um i mean I, I like you guys know i'm not the type to be like oh modern movies all look terrible but then it's like hey james <laughs> is showing everyone how to make a movie like yeah like i it's like it really throws it in sharp relief like how much like vibrancy is so rare you know in in modern blockbusters i mean even something that like you know, I think Wakanda Forever and the first Black Panther had a lot of vibrancy to it. I mean, I, of course, Wakanda Forever is a little bit more muted because it's a more somber film. But, mm -hmm. um, 
you know, like I, it's not that it's like completely missing, you know, of course, you know, Dune of course has its own color structure and stuff. So like, it's not that it's missing completely, but you know, it's just like, Oh, right. Like people don't use bioluminescence as much as they should, <laughs> you know, it's such, <laughs> yeah. a, it's such an, it's like, I, you know, many used to say this yeah. all the time. They just don't do it. They don't use bioluminescence <laughs> the way that they should. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, let's let's take this as an opportunity to move into the third act of the film, the big action sequence, because I think that that is when we're talking about the visual filmmaking of James Cameron. I mean, I don't think it gets any better than that that part of the film. Like the fact that this takes place over this massive like uh, like a ship and accompanying water zone right it's the, the geography of this place is so gigantic there's so many different characters in different places and you know where everyone is at all times you know exactly how it's interconnected with each other you know at where each person is and how you have to get to one person to the other all the different smaller battles that are happening and uh, and how, what role they play in the larger battle it's so incredibly coherent with such an insane scope i just was really blown away by the achievement of that that last hour. Yeah, and there's a real like there is real clarity to it um as you mentioned. I guess so this is a somewhat separate point, but um one of the reasons I was asking how you saw it is because um I saw this in I think it was regular 3D and my experience especially watching action scenes was that uh occasionally it seemed to me like the movement was very kind of jerky and i don't know if that was just my particular theater or if no, that's, that's the that other that's the are. high frame rate so that's so cameron used this extremely innovative uh variable uh high frame rate uh technology where you know we've in the past heard like we've seen through some of ang lee's films uh he this and through the hobbit films right this this expansion of this high frame rate technology where instead of projecting the film in 24 frames per minute we're projecting it in 60 frames per minute or 120 frames per minute right and the whole film is like that per second yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say that's uh oof <laughs> yes <laughs> and so it's so and like the the idea behind that is to like create it, it the higher the frame rate the more the digital effects can kind of feel more naturalistic in the presentation uh sure. but when you're not in digital effects it can oftentimes create this sort of like uncanny valley that i think audiences have mostly rejected at least that in as this technology is in its infancy it's gotten pretty negative feedback what cameron has been advocating for and then used in this film is to say don't project your entire film in a high frame rate use it as a storytelling tool, kind of the way that like Zack Snyder uses like speed ramping with his action mm -hmm. sequences, right? To kind of like There's a little bit of that here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but instead of but it's like kind of the inverse, right? So instead of slowing things down to make it seem more grandeur and operatic, it's like the high frame rate kind of speeds up the the experience to make it more visceral and exciting, right? Like that's the idea behind it. And what's most interesting to me about this is that I think uh, it literally depends on like the way your brain processes visual imagery, which is an idiosyncratic thing that is non-standard across humans. And so I think that like I have seen a wide variety of responses to the way that he uses this. And I don't think that it's a matter of taste. I think it's literally a matter of biology, like how you physiologically <laughs> process visual imagery in your mind. And so it's going to be uh, like a mile. Uh, your, your mileage may vary sort of situation. 
I like initially in when it first happened, I was a little bit like, oh, that's weird. And then I got used to it and I kind of really liked it. I thought that it was additive, but I'm really curious how it worked for both of you guys. So, Justin, it sounds like it was a little distracting for you. Was that it consistent was a throughout? It was a weird thing because I definitely noticed it more at certain times than others. Um, mm-hmm. I definitely noticed it more early on, which makes me think maybe my eyes just adjusted to it. Yeah, because um, he's using it consistently throughout the film. And like there's even like I was reading about how like in certain sequences, like a shot has it and then the reverse shot within the same scene doesn't have it. And it's like to and I definitely didn't notice that it felt like at a certain point it really mm-hmm. was just working in the way that it was clearly supposed to work which is where you're not constantly noticing it and take being taken out of it but i have seen for yeah. other people that it really did take them out of it consistently throughout the whole film hmm. interesting yeah um but but overall i thought it really worked for me i'm usually not a huge fan of um cgi heavy fights at night <laughs> and this i actually found very watchable i think it helps that a lot of the lighting it seemed was coming from flames from all the damage that had been caused so i thought that was a really interesting way and i'm assuming it's not naturally created light <laughs> i'm assuming it's cgi but it still feels actually like it it feels very real it feels very immediate for that scene um and i also just liked all the navigation of this of the ship i mean obviously it made me think of titanic um, I don't think anyone <laughs> who who's seen that movie was not thinking of that uh, watching this. But um, but it just made me realize, like, gosh, they had to, like, plan out not just all the different rooms and places in these ships, but also how they were going to look when they were, like, turned on their side and mm-hmm. how people were going to attempt to navigate through them. Um, so, yeah, there's a real sense of urgency there and, and immediacy. Um and I, I I think that it even like I said, just kind of like it, it was able to correct the problem I have with like uh, with, you know, night, uh, you know, night set um, action scenes for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, the scale, like you mentioned, is definitely very impressive. Um, I, I think one of the things I actually really liked about the first movie, too, is just how um, he's able to uh, show even like the Navi who are like much bigger than the humans, like just how like even they are dwarfed by the natural landscape um, mm-hmm. around them. And here you've got an ocean to work with. So it's even more apparent. Um, so yeah, there's a, yeah, a lot of that stuff did, you know, a lot of that stuff does, does work. And it is, again, it's, it's very visual. Um, that's the thing that I seem to respond to in this film. So. Yeah. And I, I think I even may have said this on our Black Panther Wakanda Forever review, but that may have just been a conversation I had in real life. I, I don't know. Um, but like the idea that like, oh, like, you know, there's that big sequence in the water on the mil- on the on the military ship in Wakanda Forever. And like people were saying, like, oh, man, like once we get Avatar, that's going to look like crap. And I mean, like, well, you know, it's not really fair to compare the two because, you know, that movie like Wakanda Forever was made in like a year and a half. This movie was made in 13 years. So like, obviously, it's going to look better. But like boy does it look better like it just looks so incredibly better like it's like you really think that they're in the middle of the ocean on a ship that's like moving around and and flipping and turning side to side and just getting decimated like uh, comparing that to like how the the what kind of forever battle looks it's just like it just is it's just embarrassing to even consider comparing the two uh in retrospect so it's and that's a movie that i like a lot but it's just like like 
it just it just blows my mind the way that like at no point in this movie does it look like anyone is standing on a soundstage like it just never ever does it always looks like they're exactly where they are in the world which is just literally not true and it just i just don't know how they did that there's a video um that was going around twitter um this past weekend of from like 2007 or whatever uh and it's uh uh, Zoe Saldana and uh, Sam Worthington like doing motion capture you know uh, they were filming and they're on a soundstage and uh, you know but it's like I totally agree with you where it's like I was like oh right like they didn't shoot this in a forest yeah. like none of this is real it's all motion capture it's all CGI it's all animation or whatever and um, I, yeah I mean like you told it just doesn't it doesn't look doesn't look fake at all and you know again like i you know i i mean i had the same feeling i had when i like watched gravity and like you see the behind the scenes stuff and you're like oh right you know like like oh they weren't in space i right, they literally space. forgot <laughs> like it's just it's that you know it's that textured and um i think also part of that is like you know we know the mcu they always shoot in georgia you mm-hmm. know and like um, I mean, I don't know where Wakanda Forever was. I mean, like, Wakanda Forever is, like, one of the better-looking ones in the re- recent years, you know? But, yes. and, like, even Eternals, like, they actually shot on that beach, you know? I think they use a lot of real locations in, in Eternals. Um, but even that, it's, like, I, I think it's, like, also just, like, as you are saying, like, the geography of the action scenes, everything is so clear. And, like, you know, I love Titanic, and I think that, like, what Titanic does really well as well is that same thing of, like, everything is placed where it needs to be placed and we have such a good spatial awareness and as they're like cross-cutting between different characters experiencing different things it's like he always like in my mind i'm thinking like when you know jake and um uh Quaritch are fighting i'm like well what's happening with nateri did she drown like and i'm like oh my god are they gonna kill jake and nateri you know that i mean that'd be insane that they did because like are like the central figures of the, I mean like I know they're not like they're not really like the protagonists of this movie it's more more the kids but um they're definitely um the central figure I mean like I cannot imagine Avatar without Neytiri at least I mean I, I I don't think she's in the fourth or fifth one which is interesting but um we'll see how that goes but yeah it's just like you know as it's all happening and like I, I think it's also I, I think part of it is also like everyone's goals are really clear mm-hmm. you know for Neytiri and Took and Kira it's like they just need to survive uh for Jake and Corey so they're they're fighting over something that's like very tangible for Loak it's this and that and Spider it's this and that so it's like everything's so clear and everything's so laid out perfectly and I I think the simplicity is really the the benefit to the film because it keeps that like I mean it, it's just like it's, it's truly amazing how like there's just no need for excessive like it's like wow there's just one like i keep going back to this and it's like wow there's just like one movie to watch before this and like you're we're learning all this stuff as the characters are learning it so there's not a lot of like there's no feeling of like catching up you know um which i think is what helps keeps things simple keeps things clear keeps things like moving forward which is why the action works so well is that like we're just experiencing this along with the characters and they're also struggling to survive and figure out how this works you know and they're you know like i like you know 
Kiri developing her powers in, under the ocean, it's like a surprise to her, like it's a surprise to us. And there's really no answer to it. And I, I think that's one of the most like bold choices of this film is that, like she has this like weird thing with like where she's like Grace's daughter, but also like post death, but she's a, she's a Navi. It's like, but they don't. There's no like major explanation for it, at least not yet. I think it's probably coming. But it's just kind of like they just have to accept it, and it's not the—they're not like hand waving it away. They're not trying to like you know sweep it away or whatever. But they're just like the characters don't know either, so they're just living with what they're learning, and so we have to do the same. Yeah, I think that that's really well said. I think that that's probably the best version of what we see on screen, like your take on it. Um, I liked the experience of that character, the Sigourney Weaver character. I thought that that was very interesting. My issue, and I think one of the things that I didn't like about this movie, and and it's small small complaints, but it unlike the first one, which really feels like a complete story, right? It feels like a complete experience. Yeah. This one clearly has pegs in it for sequels, right? Like it's like yeah. we and and it oftentimes feels a little bit contrived, right? Like the chosen one situation that's going on with Sigourney Weaver's character gets majorly slow walked in my opinion like it really feels like we just like we get it we touch on it in a scene here 30 35 minutes later we touch on it again 30 35 minutes we touch on it again and we know that we're building to some sort of thing that's going to happen in the climax but even once we get to that point in the climax we're still like where in if the movie was just about her and her character that probably would have been the climax to like to kick off the second act of the movie you know or at least to kick off the third act of the movie and then we would get more of the kind of like well what's the resolution of this mystery or whatever and it really felt like they were slowing that down because they're saving it for another movie and similarly with the Corey uh situation with like Stephen Lang character like he gets saved at the end in a way where it just feels like, well, this is literally just happening because we we set up all this stuff where he's going to clearly eventually he's going to get kind of won over to the side of the Navi. Right. But he has to work through this emotional journey of getting over this revenge qu- quest before he can do that. And so they make the whole movie be about the revenge quest. And then he gets saved by his son in a way that feels kind of hard to believe and doesn't really totally narratively feel fulfilling and it feels like well this is only happening because there's more story to tell with this character and it's like well what if we had just told his whole arc in this movie like then and then we could just move on to a different story right so and that's a problem that the first avatar doesn't have at all um it like very explicitly kills all the bad guys at the end of that movie in pretty brutal way i i totally agree with you and i think um in I think part of the reason why the Quaritch and Spider characters didn't exactly work for me totally is because it felt like such a retreat of the first Avatar in a way that's yeah. like, rather than kind of recreating the structure and the magic of it, it's kind of like, okay, now he's relearning all the stuff that Jake learned in the first movie partially, only in like, yeah, he doesn't have that like big awakening moment. And I also felt that... Um, I was like, either he's being saved to either what you're saying to like get on the side of the Navi, which is possible, or to like continue to be the villain through the next three movies, which is also possible. And um, I was kind of, it was very much like the ending of like a horror movie where like they think the like ghost face is dead, but then like the hand comes out, you know, and it's yeah, like uh-huh. you know, like so I definitely agree that this movie had more sequel hooks to it. It and um, it kind of like felt like when you watch um. To me, it's like when you watch like the first Alien or the first Terminator movie, where it's like these are just standalone stories, and then they become sequelized, and then now you're having like you know Terminator Genesis, and you're kind of like, 
You know, actually, we could have just stopped at the first Terminator, and I think we'd all be okay. No, we needed to see uh, Matt Smith as Skynet. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so it's I definitely can see that happening. I, I see that happening. I mean, I think we're in a different different place in movie making, where I, I don't think, like, Avatar 4 will be as bad as, like, Terminator Genesis, but, um, or Terminator Salvation, but um, I don't know. We'll see. I'm... It's something that I didn't really think about, but since you brought it up, I, I definitely, uh, it definitely, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. Also, can I just say, like, um, I definitely remember reading that Edie Falco was in this movie, but I had totally forgotten about it at the time <laughs> I saw it. So I had to no see idea. her, I had no idea she was going to be in this. And when I, I was like, Edie Falco, what? She's yeah, in a, she's in a and, giant robot. What is happening? <laughs> And it was really funny because, like, my mom and I actually turned to each other at the same time because I mostly know her from The Sopranos as well as right. other movies. And she mostly knows her from Nurse Jackie. So we both, but we both knew, you know, we both were familiar with her. So we had this, like, you know, even though we knew her from different places, she's like, oh, Edie Falco. Like, um, but what I, so what I think is interesting, I thought she was going to figure more into this film. It seems to me like they're setting her up for other movies. Yeah. But what I like is that it's almost like it's a very different, like it's such a contrast from Quaritch. And it's almost like, like there's something like very pragmatic, but also implacable about her, which is uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Like do something with that. Like, that's really interesting. Like what if you have someone who's doing similar destruction, but in like this totally like almost like business-like way to me, that's really terrifying. And I feel like Edie Falco could, you know, eat that kind of role for lunch. Um, but yeah, and unfortunately, maybe again, part of the issues with the fact that it seems like they're setting it up for other things, it's just not here. So it's it's there and it's tantalizing, but we haven't seen it yet. So we'll see. Yeah. If you if you want that experience, you should watch the Ava DuVernay miniseries, um, uh, When They See Us, about the Central Park Five, where she plays the DA who prosecutes them um, and does oh. horrible destruction to a community uh, uh, for very practical uh, reasons that she justifies to herself. Um, I wonder if that's why uh, James Garren cast her in this movie. Probably not. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, she's great in that role uh, and in that archetypical role as well. And I look forward to seeing her... Because she has a very noble pursuit, and as far as she's concerned, she's creating, she's finding a new place for humanity to settle once Earth ends. And if that, those are the stakes, then anything would justify, uh, would be justified, you know, for a certain type of person at least. So I definitely think that that's a more interesting, uh, more complicated um, stakes than the kind of evil corporate people just trying to mine uh this this land uh for profits right um and so i look forward to seeing her in the future in that respect also she has like crazy cool technology like the spider robots that she has that just build buildings in a single day awesome i love to see that um also like in the in the final action sequence we have like uh crab uh vehicles that was super cool. I don't know why we've never seen crab vehicles before because they seem like a, seem perfect, um, and I and I loved seeing them. A lot of the vehicles in this movie were really interesting and innovative in cool ways. A lot of the technology that the that the characters use is really cool. Um, but yeah, yeah, I didn't. That's a little bit of a sidebar, but definitely agree, Justin. <laughs> Um, I just wanted, sorry, I was doing some research because um, obviously when this movie was cast it was not last year, but. Mm-hmm. A, Edie Falco was cast in April 2019, and When They See Us was May 2019. So oh. maybe James Cameron saw a sneak peek, or he was, or he read the Wikipedia, and he's like, "Oh, interesting." 
Yeah, I bet I bet he I bet Ava would have uh, shown shown James Cameron an early uh, an early draft of her yeah, miniseries. I think so. Yeah. It's definitely possible. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I love Eddie Falco. I think. Yeah, I, I like the idea of a villain who is more business-like. To me, that's, like, a little scarier, a little bit more... Not scary, but, like, a little bit more interesting than just, like, Quaritch being like, I hate the Navi. It's like, okay, we get it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll also say, this just continues to... Like, the first film, when I rewatched it, like, my biggest takeaway was, wow, James Cameron, you you effectively radicalized me against the human species. Um, and this film just furthers that. It's such a, yeah. just such a wonderful degree. I'm just like, just leave these people alone. This is an amazing place. Go away. Just die on your terrible rock. Like that's, and it's like, but that's me. I'm talking about myself. It's like, yeah, I just, I guess, I guess James Cameron is right. I guess we all deserve to die to protect nature. <laughs> Honestly. He makes points, you know, and I think also so when I I remember when I watched the first um, Avatar movie in 2009, one of the things that bothered me was the sort of uh, like very one dimensional villainy of the humans. Right. It felt like a, a very a bit cartoony, a bit overly broad um, in the last five years, five or six years. I feel like uh, my experience of humanity has shifted a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> for reasons and i no longer feel that way about the presentation of humans in this world i don't think that it is uh not uh sophisticated enough i think that it is capturing something that is genuinely true about uh about the capacity that humans have uh to be to justify anything through tribalism through uh this sense of i i have a I have I am single mindedly um, in pursuit of my own self-interest and I'm willing to villainize anyone who runs counter to that mm-hmm. self-interest and I'm willing to. And once I have classified you as an other that is counter to my self-interest, I'm willing to be cruel in order to um, achieve those ends. And I think that we have sadly seen that in our in our real lives, uh, the capacity for cruelty uh, among just average people who have been convinced that their self-interest is uh, is only perpetrated by the acts of such cruelty. Uh, I, we've seen that in our real world, and I think that that makes the morality of this world seem more recognizable and less cartoonish uh, than it did back when I was an idealistic 19-year-old, I suppose. Well, not only that, but, like, that... I mean, yeah, not only were we idealistic in our, like, you know, 1920, but... Um, that was the, that was after the first year of the Obama, Obama presidency, you know. So yeah. like we were all on a, and that was like right around, I guess maybe like a, a year or so after the the recession. So like, I think like we were all just kind of like in this, you know, like Obama era euphoria, you know. And <laughs> I think like I mean, now you we're said in the earlier that. Era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you said uh, earlier that like you liked the movie better now than you did back in 2009, and I'm curious about if that's going to be a similar kind of um, if that's going to be a, a, a common kind of reaction is like you know all these things that feel very archetypical are um, archetypal maybe is the word um, that you know not because like we've been through like you know, the Trump presidency through COVID through, you know, what have you. And, um, uh, yeah, I think you're right that like the villainy just actually feels 
less precious than it did in 2009. Now it feels like, oh, wait, actually, people are actually like this. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's interesting to think about all this, like, all these, like, pieces of media that, um, you know, it's, it's like that, that, the old joke of, like, you know, you can't write SNL anymore because, like, or you can't write Veep anymore because, like, the reality is so ridiculous that doesn't even play, it doesn't play believably now, and it's like, I wonder if that's going to be something similar here where it's, like, we can't have, like, these, like, over-the-top cartoonish villains because, like, they're actually real. Yes. You know? Like, like I think that in 2009, if I saw that scene where, like, uh, Stephen Lang is, like, interrogating the the Navi of the reef and they're like, uh, just kill that animal just to make them talk, talk, and then they do, and it's just so senseless, and then, and then they don't talk, and so then he just burns their village down for no real reason, uh, I would have been like, well, that's a little bit too much. I mean, come on. And now I'm like, no, I, like, literally have seen people on television who I fully believe would do exactly that uh, for exactly those reasons, um, and they, like, might be elected to Congress, you know, like, so it's like... <laughs> unfortunately that, like, that's the world that we live in i think very like stanley kubrick torture chamber with the Ithaco, you know with a yeah. like you know oh, yeah, that was wild was yeah. so scary but i'm like it's funny because like they're doing that and then steven like's like hey maybe we should try the human approach and i'm like wait you guys didn't talk to him first you just put him in this chair <laughs> didn't even occur to them <laughs> oh god it's, it's great it's not great it's scary but it's yeah. interesting yeah what did, what do you think about that, Justin? Did that was I mean, I know part of what you didn't like about this movie was that it was like a little bit too broad and a little bit too reliant yeah. on archetypes. So did that was that a complaint that you had or no? I mean, I would say it was a little too many hoorahs for my taste. <laughs> That's um yeah, I don't know. It's it's again, it just it seems like the easy way to go. Like it just it I guess I don't disagree that we've seen that kind of evil, but again, just to see it on screen, I just, I was probably more, again, I think I was just more um, affected by what like Edie Falco was doing, even in her limited screen time um, than I was by any of the more over the top, you know, military brouhaha. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Just, and it's, you know, it's very similar to the first film. So at least it's consistent, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's, I thought that that might be how you felt. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, like, we, like, lived through this period where, like, literally, like, one of the catchphrases of, to, to describe an entire political movement is the cruelty is the point, right? They wanted, they did things that were expressively, explicitly cruel uh, for the purpose of being cruel. And it's, like, when you live through that, you know, like, separating children from their parents to try to get people to stop coming to this country and, like, what happens to those kids, who cares? We lost them in the system. It doesn't matter. Like, when you live yeah. through things like that, then it's, like, well, yeah, whatever the fuck is happening on Pandora, I, a, a million miles away from Earth, very believable now, suddenly, in a way that's chilling and, and just makes me so angry when you watch it on screen. Like, I'm just so mad at the injustice that these people are are committing and uh and, and it just it i found it incredibly uh significant that the movie could make me feel so strongly about these things especially mm-hmm. at a time when i feel like an earlier version of me may have rolled my eyes and been like well but that's a very unsophisticated and like really we need to find more nuance like sometimes this kind of stuff isn't nuanced sometimes it is and sometimes finding nuance is kind of like an off-ramp to try to make it better make it better and more digestible and that's actually the bolder choice is to be 
like this, you know? But I mean, do you feel that like would you say that about anything though? Like I guess that's where like I guess maybe it's because it seems so familiar to me that I just I don't see it um as maybe uh as topical as it seems like you seem to be seeing it, but like do other I don't know other films with similarly over the top villains does that have a similar effect on you or is it what's I guess my question is like what's specific about this that is able to connect you to what's happening now what we're seeing now I think just the way that Cameron presents it you know the way that he treats the characters and the way that he makes us care so deeply about the world that then when we see the acts of cruelty on display it makes it feel like such a incredibly uh emotionally upsetting thing where it's because you really he takes the time to make you care where i think other filmmakers and not always because of their own faults like i mean not many people get a chance to spend an hour on just setting the world and the environment in their film right you usually have to take like 20 minutes to do that and then get your plot moving so he gets he has the opportunity but i think because he has an opportunity i think that it pays off dividends once you're once you're fully invested in the reality of a space i think that you can get away with a lot of things mm-hmm. as a storyteller and i think that cameron is really adept at, at doing that to audiences yeah maybe it's maybe it's that i'm more invested in the world than i am in the people who inhabit it um you know, for me, I get. I think that Cameron is too, though. I think that the film is. The film is more invested in the world than the people inhabiting it. Like the the people inhabiting it are their mo. They're most significant when they're protecting the world against these like evil aliens at, who are humans, right? I mean, that I, that's when it's most motivating. Yeah, I think that's why he uses archetypes, right? Is that like it's the same reason why like. In Titanic, people are like, okay, you know, the first hour and a half is a stupid mushy romance, and then, but the real, you know, I love the second half of Titanic, and it's like, well, I think the reason, I think he's placing this very like star-crossed lovers romance that is very easy to digest in the first half, so that, you know, there's some human component when he gets to the um, the Titanic sinking, you know, and I think. The characters become more compelling as they're now not only fighting against the world as lovers who are on the run, but also now have to deal with this disaster happening. And I think, you know, Alex, your point that the characters are the most compelling when they're protecting this world. I think that's a really astute one because to me, it's like, you know, he's he's letting these archetypes almost like do part of the work for him. Now, I find Neytiri and Jake and... I mean, to the kids, like Kiri, of course, you know, she's, I think she's really compelling. I think Lolak becomes more compelling as the film goes on, as he develops his relationship with um, with the water itself. Um, I think he becomes more compelling, too, and more nuanced. Um, but I think he's placing these characters, these archetypes into this scenario so that he can put a lot of his narrative engines into building this world and creating this action. So, um, you know... I think that it's, you know, I'm going to keep going back to like how characters are now where it's like they all have to be a little sarcastic. They all have to be a little jokey. They have to be a little winking and, you know, they have to be this or that. And, um, you know, or if it's like a Chris Pratt movie, they have to be the hero. They have to be the Indiana Jones, you know, like there's always I think the characters always have to like be something, whereas like in the Avatar movies, in Titanic, I think even in The Terminator um, or in Aliens. I mean, I think Aliens, the characters are also archetypes, you know, where it's like you have Sigourney Weaver, who is like the, 
you know, she's the one no one will listen to. You have Jeanette Goldstein, you know, she's the toughest nails one. You have, you know, like all these characters are such, they're so thin, like, they're so like in some ways two dimensional, which I don't like that phrase, but like they're so like, um, they're such stereotypes or such archetypes so that that way our, our attention isn't put onto them, but uh, the intention is put onto the filmmaking, onto the world building, onto the you know the message of the film onto and so then i think it's in some ways it kind of i mean it kind of wraps back around then where it's like because the characters care so much about this planet and they're so earnest they're so sincere that i to me i find myself more compelled by them even if they're not you know very nuanced or very subtly drawn or very you know complex but um actually i read this really interesting tweet today that was like you know um you know, Neytiri being the one that wants to like dive into battle and to fight and to do that, whereas Jake is the one who's like, I need to protect the family, and I need to, um, you know, I, 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 let's let's kind of run away and hide so that we could protect the, our tribe. That that's kind of a gender reversal, where it's usually the the woman who wants to protect the family in these action movies and the man that wants to fight, um, and also kind of a reversal of who they were in the um, in the first one too. Um, so I, to me, I think the character is a little bit more interesting drawn than, than pure archetypes, but I think that there's, I, I think their sincerity, their earnestness, their simplicity kind of helps the movie, in my opinion, because I, then we're not, they're not, I'm not as distracted by, you know, like, I mean, I, I joke about the fact that like the kids all feel like they're from an eighties movie, but it's like, well, I kind of know, like, you know, you have the. You know, you have the the sweet, pretty girl. You have the like the perfect one. You have the jock. You have the jerk. You know, it's like, and now seeing them in this environment and how they kind of rise above these stereotypes to kind of support and save their planet and save their people. To me, that makes them a little bit more compelling. Sure, no, that's fair. And I just, yeah, I wish I, I wish I had that experience. Um, I'm glad that both of you did. <laughs> <laughs> um. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, you know, I tend to like, I tend to like, you know, characters are compelling by their own right. And I guess I just think a film that is about interconnectivity between, I feel like both of those things can, can be true. I feel like they can both be part and parcel of the same thing. Um, But, but I hear what you're saying. So, um, and yeah, and it seems like there's going to be <laughs> just looking at some of the reviews, it seems like there's going to be a lot of debate around this movie, um, maybe even maybe even more than the first. Um, yeah, but the we'll action seems to run the gamut, which I like. I like yeah. the movie. Like, I mean, it's it's always nice when it's every like a movie comes out and it's like, oh, we can all agree that this is fantastic. But it, that's also kind of boring. Like, it's not, I think that uh, when art hits on an emotional level, it's going to hit different people different ways. And I think sure. that that's my favorite kind of art oftentimes. And so I'm happy to see like a real diversity of opinion emerging around this film. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. There's a lot of annoying bad takes around Avatar and a lot of, like, yeah. <laughs> bad faith takes. And I definitely felt that, like, you know, you've had me think about this movie in a very different way and, like, find myself finding ways to, like, not defend it, but just, like, think about why I like it more beyond just, like, I had, it was an immersive, exhilarating experience. So Sure. Well, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen. I think uh, let's talk about where we can find everybody now. And uh, I'll start with our guest, Manish. Where's the best place to find your work online? 
Um, the best place is on Twitter. I thought I was going to step away from Twitter, but I, I guess I'm too addicted to do so. Um, but you can find me at Vertigay314, uh, V-E-R-T-I-G-A-Y-314. Also, I have a podcast at pod to be You, which can be found on all major po- podcasting platforms. Uh, right now, we are having our Bad Romance miniseries talking about unconventional relationships, bad romances, tragic ones, um, some horror films, some thrillers. Um, and uh, I just talked about Get Out with uh, my guest, Pernell Meyer. So that is available to stream now. It's a really fun episode. Uh, really some challenging topics as we are both people of color out in the dating world. Um, so that's a fun one. Eyes Wide Shut is coming up for the Christmas season. Um, yes. And so that'll be a really, really fun episode. So be sure to look out for that. Again, It Pod to Be You on all platforms. Also on Twitter uh, at It Pod to Be You. As for me, you can find my work at thecinemaverick.com. I'm also on Letterboxd at the Cinemaverick. And uh, you can also find me uh, doing a Rush podcast with Noah France and Luke Martin. And actually, my brother has kind of become an unofficial fourth member, uh, Chris Mancini. It is called Podwork Angels The Rush Hour. You can find that on thepopbreak.com. And uh, Alex, where can we find you? So I still have a Twitter account, and I also made like a Macedon account, and I have a Post account. I'm not really using any of them right now, except to post links to things that I'm working on. Um, the best way that you can keep up with me for film opinions is definitely going on to Letterboxd and uh, following me at Media Thinkings over there. Um, the rest of my social sphere is kind of in a state of flux. I was very much like, I'm never going to leave Twitter. I don't care. And then like the experience of Twitter has gotten worse over the last month or so so now i just don't <laughs> know i just don't know where, where i stand anymore on the other socials but in the meantime you can also follow my work as the podcast editor um of the by going on the clicking on the podcast tab all of my podcasts that i do for that website are there all of the podcasts that i supervise and edit and uh, and and produce are over there as well we got a lot of fun stuff um especially uh, on uh, the Breakcast feed, we have Bill versus the MCU, which is uh, our re- monthly rewatch of all the MCU. Um, we did it. Uh, we wa- rewatched the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, all four phases in 11 months, uh, kind of uh, inexplicably. Um, so our December episode, which is out now when you're listening to this, uh, is our kind of uh, awards episode, the Feige's, as we chose to call it, um, where we kind of give away um our favorite uh, we we give out a lot of awards kind of spotlighting our favorite moments and and highlights and lowlights from the first four phases and uh in in january we cook off season two of bill versus the mcu where we're going to be going through the defenders verse uh over on netflix we're going to be watching one season of uh of a marvel netflix show uh every month um culminating in our july episode where we're going to be checking in with the mcu including uh, a series called echo which is going to be featuring daredevil and kingpin and and several other characters potentially from the defenders verse so definitely uh come along on that journey if you'd like as well that's gonna that's gonna be a lot of fun but um yeah so that's the best place to find me Great. and uh and as for our and our as for our podcast uh, you can follow us on twitter at cinema joes um and uh you can subscribe to all major podcasting platforms cinema joes uh, we got a lot of fun stuff coming uh in the next 
few months, including uh, next month, our next episode, we're going to be doing our uh, big uh, grand finale to 2022, uh, where we give our, uh, our favorite moments and uh, performances uh, a special highlight. And then in uh, February, we're going to be talking Oscars. And in March, we have a special surprise. So definitely stay tuned. Yes. And thank you for mentioning all of that. Um, but for now, we want to thank all of our listeners and our subscribers. And for the Cinema Joes, this is Justin Mancini signing off.